0: Good morning everyone, it's uh, lovely to have you all here, and um, today is a, uh, oh sorry my name's Scott by the way, if we haven't met before, I'm Scott, I'm on staff here as chaplain to UCD, and um, people keep asking me, so what do you do as like a chaplain in UCD over the summer, and like if anybody knows, uh, they, that'd be great if you could let me know, um, <laughs> So um, we're starting a new series today called Traveling Companions, a journey with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And that's because we're actually starting into a new season of the church calendar. And I'll be honest with you, the people who wrote the descriptions of the seasons in the church calendar really didn't place a lot of importance on, like, branding. Um, So here's the... uh, Here's half of the year when it comes to the church calendar. So you've got Advent, all about anticipation. Christmas, about incarnation. Epiphany, about revelation. Uh, Lent, about the crucifixion. Easter, about the resurrection. Pentecost and the ascension. The movement of the Spirit, all wonderful and exciting. And then we enter into ordinary time. (laughs) Ordinary time. It's very difficult to get people hyped up about ordinary time. Like... um, it does have the worst name ever, basically, but it, it is also a really special time of the year. Um, the, the, the seasons above, from Ed, Advent through to Pentecost, they invite us to explore the story of Jesus, but then the rest of the year is actually dedicated to the story of the people of God. And so that's a historic story, but it's also our story. It's our calling, it's our purpose, and it's our identity. So we spent one half of the year reflecting on the story of of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and delving deeply into that. And then the rest of the year is us taking that information, those experiences, those encounters, our understanding, our learning that comes from it, and then deeply applying it into the way in which we live as individuals and as a community. So we're kicking off our sermon series. It's on. It's called "Traveling Companions," and it's drawn from Luke's Gospel. And um, as with all books of the Bible, there are various theories about how to study that particular. Um Th- this particular book and many scholars actually see Luke in three kind of key distinct sections and um, They see um, they see it as Galilee and Jerusalem and then in the middle They have the journey in between so Galilee is the place where Jesus spent his childhood He's born in Bethlehem They the family go off into essentially into almost like exile out in Egypt um, where there are refugees and then they come back To Nazareth which is in Galilee and that's where Jesus spends his formative years so Luke 1 through 9 um, well, not quite one through nine, but like, um, but the 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 first third, essentially, of the Gospel of Luke, is in Jesus's home area, his hometown, and um, the place that his family is from. And then the final few chapters from 19 onwards are in Jerusalem. And actually, that one particular, like, from 19 through to I guess it's like 25, um, is the is the story of the final week of his life. But in between is the journey from one place um, to the other. So we go from the place of his childhood to the place of his death. And this gives me a great excuse to do my favorite thing in church on a Sunday, a little segment I like to call Fun With Maps. Um, Just so you all know, I would be embarrassed to buy a laser pointer because they're basically the nerdiest things in the world. But if one of you bought me a laser pointer, I wouldn't be upset about it and it would be rude not to use it, um, and that would be great. Fun with maps. I actually meant to bring my little ladder from the house this morning just to be able to me. Um, so here we have um, uh, Palestine, Israel in the time of Jesus. Um, up at the top um, you can see um, uh, Capernaum. If we hit next there I think that may come up. Yep. So uh, Capernaum was the city where Jesus kind of was spending his adult life. Um, so he would, have been, he would have spent his childhood over in Nazareth. You can see there ob- above uh, Galilee in red. And Galilee was that whole area, and Capernaum kind of was Jesus' adult home uh, from which he departed on his ministry journey. And then down the bottom in Judea, we have Jerusalem. Uh, so next there. yeah. So this is the journey that Jesus makes from Luke 9 through to Luke 19. So there's like 10 chapters of the book that are actually dedicated to this particular journey um, and the things that happen along the way. The journey was about 60 or 70 miles. It would take about three to five days by donkey or on foot. And that's if you're not stopping along the way. But I think the reason that it's such a, a significant piece of time is because Jesus is always stopping along the way. He stops to talk, he stops to eat, he joins gatherings and parties. He takes detours, and he often chooses to take the long way around. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that just because Jesus meanders or doesn't take the fastest route from point A to point B, that he doesn't know where he's going. He does. And actually, Luke makes that really clear. In Luke 9:51, the beginning of this, the traveling companion section, it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken, to, taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And throughout the next few chapters, you hear that over and over again. And then they left there, and they headed towards Jerusalem. But knowing he was headed towards Jerusalem. And Luke keeps reminding us that this is like the driving theme. So everything that's happening in the, in the foreground, it's kind of like if you were to look at a painting, everything that's happening in the front in the foreground is the encounter, the, uh, the conversational interactions that Jesus has um, with uh, individuals and groups of people, disciples, Samaritans, Israelites, the, the whole spectrum. But always in the background on the horizon is the movement towards Jerusalem and what comes with Jerusalem, which of course is his death. And then the last kind of mention of that is in Luke nineteen twenty eight, where he says, after he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And the next verse is the beginning of the triumphal entry. So we have these 10 passages that encapsulate this journey and a few things that I think we need to talk about um, to, uh, to, to discuss the journey. Next slide there. Curious. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Um, First thing to notice about the journey, it's not chronological. Luke doesn't seem to be overly concerned with the order in which things happened, which makes things kind of weird. Like we'll kind of jump around from um, uh, from location to location, and that makes life a little bit difficult in terms of figuring it out. So, but it doesn't seem that Luke was like trying to be like. Giving you a travel itinerary with a description of what happened on the way. It's more theological. It's more about the the parables that he tells, the interactions that he has. That's what he's um, uh, he's driving at. The second thing is it's not linear. The events, the events and the encounters of the trip, they don't happen in line with what a conventional journey from Galilee to Jerusalem would have looked like. The third thing to notice is the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem takes you through Samaria. And Samaria was the, the place where we, you know, we hear the word, you've heard the word Samaritan. Um, you, you might have heard it in terms of the parable of the Good Samaritan or the story in John of, the, um, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And Samaria used to be Israel's northern kingdom before their disobedience led to them being destroyed by invading empires who carried off loads of people and, um, and then settled in the area. So this area, Samaria, actually kind of, it used to be Israel but is now populated by the children of invaders and exiles. And so this movement from, like, from, from Galilee to Jerusalem, it's not a safe journey for Jesus and the disciples. But by journeying and preaching through this area, he's proclaiming God's redemptive plan for all people, that God's kingdom and God's salvation is for everybody. And one of the things that's really striking about that is actually that it's just at the beginning of the journey before Jesus begins this 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 time of journeying through Samaria, and ministering the, to the people there, that he tells the story of the parable of the good Samaritan, where the Samaritan, who would have been considered the um, uh, by most Israelites at the time, they would have, he would have they would have been considered mo- like. Um, theologically unfaithful. In Harry Potter terms, they would have described um, Samaritans essentially as mudbloods because they had um, corrupted what they would have considered the, um, the purity of their race. Um, by marrying with others, by other, by invaders who settled in the land, so they were no longer considered a pure people. Um, and so, whether it was in terms of race or in terms of religion, um, the people ar- around Jesus, am- around whom Jesus grew up, would have considered the Samaritans to be outsiders—people who used to be the people of God and then essentially sold away their inheritance or gave up their identity as the people of God—and were now whatever they would be described as. The animosity was real and the hatred was real. And so when Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan, he's, he's taking the people, the person who the world, consider, the world in which he lives considers to be a villain or the unfaithful or the unworthy, and he's making the Samaritan the hero of the story. He takes the outsider and he draws him towards the center and says this is the one through whom you can learn about the heart of God because in all your obsession with ticking boxes, you have forgotten what his heart actually is. So by journeying through Samaria, he's, remi- he's telling people, he's not reminding them, because this is probably for many of them the first time, that God's kingdom and salvation is for everyone, not just for one group of people. And then the fourth thing to realize is that throughout the journey, he's preparing the disciples for life without him. And they won't actually understand it until after Jesus' death and resurrection. But as he walks with them, he teaches them, he sends them out, and he welcomes them back. He's, prever- he's preparing them for, for life in a world that doesn't understand them. And by becoming Jesus' traveling companions, we too can learn from the brilliance and the beauty of these conversations and encounters. It's discipleship for those who are traveling with Jesus, and it's transformation for the people that they meet along the way. Eugene Peterson uh, describes it like this. Um, Their lives, this is the disciples he's talking about, their lives are going to be changed from the inside out. But at the same time, they're going to be dealing with the same people, the same routines, the same temptations, the same Roman and Greek and Hebrew culture, the same children and same parents, the sometimes endless waiting, facing the indifference of so many about them, dealing with the maddening hypocrisies of the self-righteous, the stupidities of war, the absurdities of conspicuous consumption, and the lies of arrogant rulers. Everything will have changed. And yet nothing will have changed. And so much of that, I think, is kind of our discipleship as well, is that we're learning um, along the way. And and there's all this transformation that's happening within us. And yet the world within us stays the same. It's slow to change. Despite everything that happens within us, oftentimes we can feel like the world still is continuing on its trajectory towards exclusion, isolation, and sometimes self-destruction. Which finally brings us to the verses that i'll be preaching on this morning which ironically are not part of this journey um, our text today is actually from luke chapter 8 so it's the chapter before the journey begins but in many ways this passage actually kind of mirrors similar themes because jesus and the disciples they leave the safety of home to cross the sea of galilee and to serve strangers in a strange land so um, this is from luke chapter 8 uh, 26 to 39 then they arrived at the country of the gerasenes which is opposite galilee As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside was a large herd of swine, uh, or a large herd of swine was feeding. And the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herds... Her- it's always funny to... So swineherds is shepherds, but for pigs. Just I don't know if you know that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so when the swineherds heard uh, saw that that had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from, the, from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away preaching throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. So if we go back to the map, you can see on the... Uh, think that's the next slide is it yeah so you see um uh, where Gergesa is there that would be the country that became the garrison so it's from the other side uh, it's opposite Galilee on the sea of Galilee on the far side so that's where Jesus and the disciples would have set out on their boat earlier in Luke chapter 8 it's the story of the storm where they're caught in a storm and Jesus calms the storm and then they 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 find themselves on the other side of the lake in a in a strange land with people they don't know and it's so interesting looking at these two stories that happen one after the other the the first story that happens is the, is the external storm. It's the wind and the waves. It's the, um, it's the, the fear of, of, of um, capsizing in the middle of the water. It's feeling like your life is at risk. And then they meet a man who is a victim of an internal storm. The same experience, the, um, the, the turbulence and trauma of emotions and demons and struggles that one cannot control, so much so that he has found himself isolated, disconnected, and on the outside. There are a couple of fascinating ways to explore, I think, what's going on in the passage. Uh, John Carroll, in his commentary, makes the point that this story may be both literal and symbolic. One of the things we need to remember when reading ancient texts is that carrying them had consequences, particularly if you were part of a persecuted, upstart religion that the empire had begun to feel threatened by. So some commentators would actually say that in a passage like this where the word demon was used, demon was a, a code word for the Roman Empire itself. Because you couldn't, you couldn't write in these documents that the, um, uh, that, you know, that the empire was the enemy or that the empire was the, was the thing that, that the kingdom of God needed to overtake or destroy because you'd be killed for having that document. So some commentators argument that um, this is a prime example of using code to describe the empire. And if so, it's really empowering for, for people who are oppressed by the empire. The man who's possessed represents the people of the area. Um, who were uh, persecu- who were possessed and oppressed by the Roman army? And so the big clue to this is um, the word "legion," which had such an immediate connection to Rome uh, and to her armies. So within the text and in the story, the um, the world, the powers of the world are actually turned on their head. It's the Roman armies then if this interpretation or idea is correct, that beg the Messiah, do not torment me. And as an oppressed person, can you imagine how hilarious and empowering it is to change the script, to change the narrative in your head for the, for the person who is oppressed and struggling um, to, to imagine themselves on the other side of the coin, to imagine the Roman armies that were unstoppable across the world, begging the, the Son of God who comes with peace, do not torment me when they are the source of the torment. And then they're cast out, and what do they do? They destroy themselves by running off a cliff. And so symbolically, the Roman Empire cowers in fear before the Son of God, and even when left to its own devices, runs off a cliff. Luke is saying that the warring empires of the world that seek to dominate and oppress will always destroy themselves. The empire will always be consumed by its own thirst for violence and power, but the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love and grace and mercy, shall have no end. So that's the high-level, bird's-eye view. But that's not to say that this story isn't literal and relational with deep and beautiful lessons for how we live in love. John Carroll, in his commentary, describes the man possessed like this. He says, Immediately after reaching land, Jesus encounters a man whose life is so distorted by the demons inside him that he has long made his home among the buried dead, naked, isolated from the society of the living. Let's take a moment to imagine what life would have been like for um, the man possessed. His story is a story of loss. At some point, he lost his family, and they lost him. At some point, because of what raged within him, he lost his community, his sense of place in the world. I had the uh, pleasure of leading our 10 o'clock service today um, where uh, some of you may know Edward Lewis, who's one of the readers in the parish, and Edward was preaching this morning. It's always great to go and hear someone else preach about the passage just before you do. Um, But Edward had this great line as he was preaching on this passage, and he said, um, uh, he said, at some point this man would have known love and community, but now he can't even remember his own name to experience that kind of trauma, to experience that kind of heartbreak, that kind of lack of control. It's almost impossible for us to relate to, and yet it's such a profound part of the human experience for so many. Eventually, this man, he finds himself living in the in-between place, between the living and the dead, between human and animal. Can you imagine his fear, his fear of what people will say to him or do to him? his fear of what the demons will do in him when they take over where he feels himself trapped like a bystander in his own body watching something take control of it and tear his life apart and him silently screamingly internal uh, internally as his community walks away from him and he feels unable to stop it and the shame he feels about himself when he realizes he can't really blame those who walk away working with youth and young adults like from my professional life um This has been a common story. I don't know a lot about demons, um, but I know that the same is true with people whose lives are wracked by addiction or ravaged by trauma. People who are trapped in cycles of self-destruction, or who are terrified of being seen and being known because of how much they've been hurt before. People whose lives have been stripped bare and who find themselves cast out to the fringes, to places and spaces that are good enough for the dead, but are no place for the living. And so the arc of redemption in this story is beautiful initially and then quickly followed by heartbreak. Jesus sets the victim free. He brings restoration and redemption. And then the members of the community that he was cast out of, they come to see what all the fuss is about. They see the one exiled sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. What do they feel, excited, elated, exuberant? No. Are they moved to tears? Are they filled with hope? Nope. They were afraid. They were so afraid that they asked Jesus to leave. Which raises some questions about what it means for us to be the people of God. Are we afraid when God restores those we have written off? Are we afraid when God restores those we have written off? We like to think that we are the judges of the trajectory of other people's stories, the ones who can say what somebody is or is not worthy of, of what they do and do not deserve, of whether they should be in or whether they should be out. The sad fact is that the only reason that the people of the town have actually come to see what has happened is not because a man got his life back. It's because another man lost his pigs. Which raises the question, what happens when our comfort or our wealth or our luxury is put at risk for the sake of those who are lost or hurting or abandoned? Do we want Jesus to leave? Or do we want him to live among us, live within us, and be revealed in the way in which we live? Our lives are so boundaried, so often so contained and so controlled and so comfortable. One of my favorite um, quotes that's been that I've heard from various people over the last few years of people working in the kind of Christian activism movement, and I remember Jared McKenna saying it with us when he was here last year, he's saying, you say that you love the poor, what are their names? Who do you know whose story makes you uncomfortable? whose story and its trajectory you can't predict or you can't control. Who you are tempted to ask to leave rather than to invite to stay. It's so easy for me as I was reading this passage to be so mad at the people in the the community. How dare you do this to this man, you know? Um, And to be honest like life is messy like I can understand like sometimes you're in a toxic situation You just need to be able to say to to somebody Like we're in a situation that you can't change you need to go like it You know the 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 man in the passage he's they bind him with shackles and he breaks free of them and finds his way back into the wilds. You can't control where people are going to go or what they're going to do with their woundedness or their brokenness But we can control whether or not we are a place for them to come home to It's only four, five chapters later that Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, where the son who leaves and finds himself eating pig food in a foreign land is driven home by his hunger. I think people like to think that he had this great repentance moment. I think he was hungry. Um, I, I, I never like to overestimate um, the, uh, the piety of the people in the stories, particularly um, because I don't want to be guilty or in danger of overestimating my own. Um, I think he comes home because he's hungry, and he comes home to a father who is waiting with open arms. And we, as the people of God, so often shape the things that we hear of God in order to lessen the challenge and increase the comfort. One of the commandments is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we interpret that as when you hit your thumb with a hammer, you shouldn't say God's name, as if that was the point or even something that was done at the time. The truth of that commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God his character, his goodness, and his kingdom upon your life and claim it for your own. If when his arms are open, your arms are closed. That's what it means to take his name in vain, to say that you belong to him, that you believe you are made in his image, and then somehow to interpret this as if this is a story about me rather than a story about him and his redemption and restoration that he longs for for all of us. which is why it's kind of a pleasure to ruin your Sunday. <laughs> because these hard questions that live within the passage, I know when I see something that I don't recognize or that doesn't fit with my narrative, I, like these people in the story, my first, my go-to is, is to fear. It's scary. But perfect love drives out fear and perfect love welcomes people home. Let's pray. Father of goodness and grace, whose love is too great for us to bear, whose welcome is more patient than we can understand, and who never tires of giving second chances, make us people who are not owned by our fear, but people who are open to your movement. Make us people who do not ask you to leave, but rather invite you to live within us, in our church, in our relationships, (coughs) in our community, and in our hearts. In your name, amen.